Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 8 of my series, The Wampus Frolic, and while this is an arbitrary time to do so, I'm going rogue. So far in this series, I have been chronicling the lives, careers, and public personas, predominantly through fan magazines and other media of their day, of all of the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers' annual list of 13 baby stars, covering 1922, 1923, and 1924. There are many more baby stars to come, but it occurred to me that, mentally, I need to shake things up a smidge this week, and also that the more context you have, the better. So this will be a quick and dirty episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast, a two-reeler, if you will. I will. I'm definitely calling it a two-reeler. Expect these every now and again, and as per my whims. Today's two-reeler, in which I discuss silent films in general, and cover in more detail two of the biggest movies of the silent era, which featured Wampus Baby Stars, to keep it topical. Let's get started. Have you ever watched a silent film? I realize that may come across as a judgmental question, because I am the host of a podcast that at the moment is focused very heavily on silent film stars. I assure you, if you haven't, that's perfectly normal. To a pretty large degree, in fact, having never seen a silent film is simply practical. A fuckton of them are lost. I suppose that's not a very precise measurement. The Film Foundation estimates that 90% of films made before 1929 are lost. They either no longer exist, or exist only in fragments, or maybe there could, in theory, perhaps somewhere be a copy of the film in some condition, but if there is, literally no one knows it's there. 90%. That is staggering. And it's one of the reasons why, when people make sweeping judgments all about silent films, that they're silly, or that audiences believed things that we would find laughable today. It rings hollow to me. How can any art form, or any product for that matter, be evaluated based on 10% of it? We can extrapolate some things, sure, but we will never know what was really being created. So what happened to them all anyway? One of the biggest culprits was what the films themselves were made out of, silver nitrate. Not only could it degrade easily, but this stuff was highly flammable. Nitrate could go up in smoke during projection, for example, like you could be happily watching a movie and suddenly be in the middle of a fire evacuation. The studios had vaults with all their master copies and negatives in them, and several studio lots had major fires which decimated their archives. Universal in 1924, Warner Brothers in 1932, 20th Century Fox in 1937, and many more. Then there's the human element. Not only would prints be harvested for their silver content, 
It was also just generally believed by many people that the older films had no value. For example, according to Turner Classic Movies, in 1947, Universal decided to cull what remained of its silent film inventory, destroying literally thousands of films. And you know, these were businesses after all. And if there was no market for silent films, what were they supposed to do? Dedicate precious studio vault space to an outdated movie in perpetuity? Especially when it could basically burst into flames at any moment? It's hard to argue that people at the time were expected to appreciate the future historical significance of some of these works. And given the nature of having to store, maintain, and protect physical copies of the films, it's a wonder we have any to see today at all. Though it's aggravating to think of all the hard work, talent, time, and money that went into creating so many silent films that we'll just never get to see. So frankly, to return to my question, if you've seen any silent films at all, give yourself a pat on the back. You beat the odds. Throughout this podcast, I've mentioned a whole slew of films that featured the Wampus Baby stars. Some, of course, had more prolific careers than others. Many of their films are now lost. But I thought it would be a worthwhile exercise to explore some of the most important or interesting ones, so I picked two from 1923, Flaming Youth and Human Wreckage. What were these films about? How were they marketed? And how did those 1923 audiences react to them? Let's find out. Flaming Youth Released in November 1923, Flaming Youth not only launched Colleen Moore, baby star of 1922, into the upper echelons of Hollywood stardom, it helped launch Flappers into the mainstream consciousness. Flappers, young ladies who loved jazz, wore short skirts, and ran wild, emerged in the 1920s as a youth subculture. While the term was used as early as the early 1900s, it took off as a way to describe this new type of modern girl, one who was full of life. She was rejecting the conservatism of her Edwardian and Victorian parents, and reacting to a childhood marked by war and tragedy. In many places, some women, white women, had just gotten the right to vote, and there was suddenly improved access to automobiles, exciting music, and yes, the movies, all of which emboldened the flapper. Colleen Moore was not the first, nor was Flaming Youth the first flapper movie. But it was the first big flapper hit, and it helped cement the flapper image. Flaming Youth began its life as a novel by Samuel Hopkins Adams, published under the pseudonym he used for his more risque work, Werner Fabian. I haven't read it. Should I have read it before I did this? Sorry. But hey, plenty of people back in 1923 wouldn't have read the book before they started seeing advertisements for the movie version either. It was directed by John Francis Dillon, who was a prolific filmmaker with well over 100 credits to his name. He died in 1934 from a heart attack at just 49. Flaming Youth is a partially, mostly, really, lost film. 
Originally with a 90-minute runtime, only one reel, it's about 10 minutes, survives. And it's fragmented, though the scenes appear to be in order, with missing scenes in between. It's almost more of a highlight reel, though not what I would describe as a trailer either. Regardless, the main plot is basically established. Colleen Moore plays a young lady named Pat, whose mother, before her death, had an affair with a man played by Milton Stills. Eventually, Pat and her mother's lover fall for each other. Of course, there's other details we don't get to see in the ten-minute assortment of clips, like Pat nearly having sex with a musician on a boat and other risque scenes, but a scene where a bunch of partygoers go wild in a pool in various states of undress does survive. That flaming youth was risque was at the crux of its marketing. This is the daring society expose to which the author refused to sign his real name, reads the print ads. Campaigns ran across small towns and cities alike to promote the film, sometimes causing local scandals. Motion Picture News reports of a theater doing a tie-in with a local department store and dressing a mannequin up like Colleen Morris' character, only to have aroused official indignation and, naturally, of course, a heavier drapery was supplied after objections had been entered. The drapings were not completed, however, until ample publicity had been given to the protest, its reply, and the official decision, and until almost all of New Haven had the opportunity of gazing at the window. That the morals police were against the picture helped sell the picture. Who wouldn't want to see what all the fuss was about, you know? Critics were a bit torn. It was good, but they couldn't not mention that it was, as screen opinions noted, about something disastrous to the morals of youth. We cannot see how flaming youth can escape criticism from people of moral responsibility. The trend of the production is distinctly unmoral in spite of the fact that it reflects a startlingly true picture of a modern type of society, which exists under the influence of jazz and booze. The production is elaborately and beautifully staged. It is considerably too long, and will be improved when a few hundred feet are eliminated from the latter half, including some of the kissing scenes. The spectator is apt to be touched with pity as well as being amused, as the flapper satisfies her hunger for petting in the arms of every nice-looking man she meets. We are not sure that the picture does not contain a lesson for mothers and fathers who choose to take it seriously. Original comedy, some pathos, and as startlingly vivid a picture of the jazzy world of modern life as one could ever wish to see and to regret, for that matter, is found in flaming youth. Do not bring children to see this picture. It is only for the mature mind. From the theater owners, who wrote mini-reviews into Moving Picture World about the films they played at their movie houses, there was some debate over whether or not flaming youth was quite as scandalous as many would have you believe. Suitable for a Sunday is shorthand for the moral standing of a film. Audiences would be offended after all if a picture had too much sex or violence on the Lord's Day. Well, in the May 3rd and 10th 
1924 editions of Moving Picture World, there are eight reviews of Flaming Youth. Four say that it is suitable for a Sunday, three say that it isn't, and one doesn't specify at all, but it does say, Youth, Joy, Jazz, Cigarettes, Cocktails, Necking, Petters, White Kisses, Red Kisses, Pep, Nerve, Spice. I don't know what a red kiss is, and I don't know if it is suitable for a Sunday. Here in Canada, hello, I'm in Canada, Flaming Youth was banned after a judge in Quebec deemed that it was an immoral picture. So I guess that none of my ancestors could have seen it anyway. Some of the reviews felt that Flaming Youth was too moralistic. Colleen Moore's character does, after all, eventually settle down with her much older lover, who her mother also banged, remember, learning that to be a wild, sexy flapper isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Still, it was one of the biggest films of the year. First National declared in the film daily that it was their greatest and most consistent moneymaker, and a big whopping hit. In Motion Picture News, the studio noted that it was a record-breaker in every locality and one of the biggest money-getters ever produced. And now, it's gone. Human Wreckage The other film I want to talk to you about today is 1923's Human Wreckage. Also considered to be a lost film, and one that had to navigate censorship, Human Wreckage was inspired by real-life events in Hollywood that shook the industry. Wampus Baby Star of 1922 Bessie Love played an integral role, and the film also featured 1924 Baby Star Lucille Rickson. But the true stars of the picture were James Kirkwood and Dorothy Davenport, a.k.a. Mrs. Wallace Reed. Wallace Reed was a handsome, popular matinee idol. Known as the screen's most perfect lover, he had a big boyish smile, a strong jawline, broad shoulders, and by most accounts he was a devoted husband to Dorothy, who he married in 1913, and a loving father to their son Wally Jr., born in 1917, and a daughter adopted later. In 1919, while filming The Valley of the Giants with Paramount, Wallace was injured when a stunt went wrong. Unable or unwilling to stop the production, the studio had their onset doctor administer morphine injections to the star so that he could finish filming, thus setting off a life-ruining and life-ending chain of events. Wallace became addicted to morphine, and very likely heroin, and it took over his life over the next few years. Up until 1922, his drug use was a secret to audiences, but after he was hospitalized, the truth, more or less, came out. Having a major movie star, a heartthrob at that, being addicted to illicit drugs, is terrible news for Hollywood, especially during a time period when, owing to a number of scandals, its reputation as a place of sin was growing. Will H. Hayes, whose new job was to clean up the town, sprung into action in collaboration with Dorothy. They worked hard through sympathetic fan magazine reporting and newspaper interviews 
to stress the message that Wallace Reed was not a CD drug addict, but a victim. A victim of the illness that is addiction, and a victim of immoral narcotics pushers, based in New York, they insisted, not Hollywood, who prey on the innocent. He needed his wife's unwavering support, he needed his studio's backing and kindness, he needed everyone's understanding, and he would overcome this terrible affliction. Seeing addiction as an illness is remarkably progressive-sounding, and if it wasn't coming from a place of protecting the Hollywood image at all costs, I'd feel a lot better about it. Wallace Reed passed away due to withdrawal complications. He was only 31. The public reaction was one of heartbreak, as he had lost his brave battle. It was announced, very quickly, that Dorothy Davenport would be making a film inspired by her husband's story so that she may continue to fight against the evil that is drugs. Released on June 17, 1923, that's just five months after his death, the film was the Dorothy Davenport Show, or rather the Mrs. Wallace Reed Show. I'm not fully trying to suggest that her motives were suspect. She was put in a horrible situation. She was grieving, and she did want to make a change in the world. But she also starred, co-produced, co-wrote, uncredited, and unofficially co-directed. Dorothy also took the film on tour doing talks about the demon morphine. It is cynical of me, but it's hard to take all of this as purely selfless. And I'm not the only one who raised an eyebrow. Sorrows for sale, reads a headline in Screenland's October 1923 issue. If certain motion picture people now in the limelight were to advertise in the classified sections of the newspapers, their bid for business would read like this. For sale, sorrows, nationally advertised, guaranteed to bring tears and sympathy. Seller, realizing enormous publicity value of the great tragedy which has marred his life, offers his sorrows to the highest bidder. They go on to name-drop who else but Mrs. Wallace Reed as the latest seller of sorrow. As a marketing tactic, it did work. This is why we still have people posting videos of themselves dancing in the ICU. It's not new. It's unsettling, but not new. Of course, she wasn't dancing. Human wreckage took itself very seriously. Photoplay's review said, not a cheery story for the whole family, and yet a picture that will probably do the old world a lot of good. The drug evil has never known so stiff a celluloid uppercut. Human wreckage starts out to show the inevitable breaking down of the physical and moral fiber of the narcotic victim, and it does so very completely. The story deals with a young lawyer who falls victim to dope, and who comes face to face with a complete failure and death. How he fights back, aided by a faithful wife, is the theme. Human wreckage is well played and very well acted, particularly by Bessie Love and George Hackathorn. Special merit attaches to the excellent performance given by Mrs. Wallace Reed, and it was largely through her that the production was made. She gives a portrayal that is most effective. 
I'd say the reviews are generally mixed. There's an air of, this isn't a great movie, but it's a great message, so you should see it. One in the exhibitor's Herald said, this is no Harold Lloyd comedy, but a picture that teaches a good lesson. Of course, that same theater owner mentions that the film came close to breaking a house record, except that there were two KKK meetings in town. That town would be Pittsfield, Illinois, and I just thought you should know. The New York Times review is one of the more damning. To deliver a lecture through a motion picture against the traffic and drugs, Mrs. Wallace-Reed appears in a film called Human Wreckage, presented last night at the Lyric Theater. It is a story that might appeal to an audience of those who need narcotics, but to the average person, who has a night off and goes to the theater for entertainment, it is not pleasing. Basically, maybe this would convince folks who already use drugs to stop, but why are you lecturing us, a non-drug-imbibing people? They go on to give us a taste of what was actually in the film. A valiant attempt has been made to render this production effective, and James Kirkwood's performance is, in certain sequences, unusually good. The story, however, wanders along until it becomes tiresome, and the dramatic climax is spoiled. C. Gardner Sullivan, who's responsible for the scenario, has at times left certain characters out of the story for so long that they are almost forgotten. One realizes throughout the story that there must be a great deal of truth in some of the details of the drug addict, inasmuch as Mrs. Reed has undoubtedly put in her personal experiences with other persons addicted to drugs. But, the reviewer needs you to know, it is a little silly. The drug peddler is symbolized through double exposure by a hyena, who prowls through the scenes in ghostly form. Efforts are made to show how the drug is delivered to the various purchasers, either through hollow chocolate creams, the sole of a shoe, the legging of a boot, or the inside of a book. But all seem to make so much fuss about getting the little piece of paper that they might be more easily detected by the narcotic squad than if they brazenly took the drug by a shake of the hand. So basically, some audiences really engaged with the film mostly on the basis of it providing a strong moral message. It's not like their minds were changed by the picture. They'd heard about the evils of narcotics. Human wreckage confirmed that for them. A+. Plus. And then the more cynical audiences met the film with an eye roll. Not because they rejected the message, but because the presentation was corny. Just like almost every anti-drug film to come. Because the message was so anti-drug, even though drug use was shown repeatedly in the film, a still even survives of Bessie Love's character injecting herself in the background as Dorothy Davenport sits in the foreframe cradling a child, and it was made in direct collaboration with Will Hayes, there's no notable censorship issues in the United States. That said, the film was banned in Britain, as anything showing the drug habit would have required a cut. The whole film depicted a drug habit, so there we go. Human Wreckage performed well stateside, though, especially in middle America, whereas Variety called it a decided flop in New York, Reports from Kansas City, for example, called it 
record-breaking, and say that it played seven times a day to packed houses. But even record-breaking silent films are not immune to the passages of time. The San Francisco Call and Post said, Human wreckage is in a class by itself. It will be remembered as long as the screen exists. Not quite. One tackled sex, the other tackled drugs, with two very different approaches, which polarized their audiences. And while neither can be seen in full, or in the case of human wreckage, at all, both speak to a level of sophistication in at least some of the audience members sitting in the theater back in 1923, something not often credited to moviegoers of a hundred years ago. I hope you've enjoyed this change of pace. I'll be back next week with the Wampus Baby Stars of 1925. But I must say I've had fun with my little two-reeler here. If you've been enjoying the show so far, let me know. You can find me on Instagram at theoldmovielady, or email me at theoldmovielady at gmail.com, or leave me a review. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.